0: Second part eight chapter twenty two the sea still rises haggard saint-antoine had had only one exultant week in which to soften his modicum of hard and bitter bread to such an extent as he could with the relish of fraternal embraces and congratulations when madame defarge sat at her counter as usual presiding over the customers madame defarge wore no rose in her head for the great brotherhood of spies had become even in one short week, extremely chary of trusting themselves to the saint's mercies. The lamps across his streets had a portentously elastic swing with them. Madame Defarge, with her arms folded, sat in the morning light and heat, contemplating the wine-shop and the street. In both, there were several knots of loungers, squalid and miserable, but now with a manifest sense of power enthroned on their distress. The raggedest nightcap awry on the wretchedest head, had this crooked significance in it. I know how hard it has grown for me, the wearer of this, to support life in myself, but do you know how easy it has grown for me, the wearer of this, to destroy life in you? Every lean, bare arm that had been without work before, had this work always ready for it, now that it could strike. The fingers of the knitting-women were vicious with the experience that they could tear. There was a change in the appearance of Saint Antoine. The image had been hammering into this for hundreds of years, and the last finishing blows had told mightily on the expression. Madame Defarge sat observing it, with such suppressed approval as was to be desired, in the leader of the Saint Antoine women. One of her sisterhood knitted beside her. The short, rather plump wife of a starved grocer, and the mother of two children withal, this lieutenant had already earned the complimentary name of The Vengeance. "'Hark!' said The Vengeance. "'Listen, then—who comes?' As if a train of powder, laid from the outermost bound of St. Antoine Quarter to the wine-shop door, had been suddenly fired, a fast-spreading murmur came rushing along. "'It is Defarge,' said Madame. "'Silence, patriots!' Defarge came in breathless, pulled off a red cap he wore, and looked around him. "'Listen, everywhere,' said Madame again. "'Listen to him!' Defarge stood panting against the background of eager eyes and open mouths, formed outside the door. All those within the wine-shop had sprung to their feet. "'Say then, my husband, what is it?' "'News from the other world!' "'How, then?' Cried Madame, contemptuously. The other world? Does everybody here recall old Foulon, who told the famished people that they might eat grass, and who died and went to hell? Everybody! From all throats. The news is of him. He is among us. Among us! From the universal throat again. And dead? Not dead. He feared us so much, and with reason that he caused himself to be represented as dead, and had a grand mock funeral. But, they have found him alive, hiding in the country, and have brought him in. I have seen him but now, on his way to the Hôtel de Ville, a prisoner. I have said that he had reason to fear us. Say all, had he reason? Wretched old sinner, of more than threescore years and ten, If he had never known it yet, he would have known it in his heart of hearts, if he could have heard the answering cry. A moment of profound silence followed. Defarge and his wife looked steadfastly at one another. The vengeance stooped, and the jar of a drum was heard as she moved it at her feet behind the counter. "'Patriots!' said Defarge, in a determined voice. "'Are we ready?' Instantly, Madame Defarge's knife was in her girdle. The drum was beating in the streets, as if it and a drummer had flown together by magic. And the Vengeance, uttering terrific shrieks, and flinging her arms about her head like all the forty furies at once, was tearing from house to house, rousing the women. The men were terrible in the bloody-minded anger with which they looked from windows, caught up what arms they had, and came pouring down into the streets. But the women were a sight to chill the boldest from such household occupations as their bare poverty yielded from their children from their aged and their sick crouching on the bare ground famished and naked they ran out with streaming hair urging one another and themselves to madness with the wildest cries and actions villain foulon taken my daughter then a score of others ran into the midst of these breeding their breasts tearing their hair and screaming foulon alive Foulon, who told the starving people they might eat grass. Foulon, who told my old father that he might eat grass when I had no bread to give him. Foulon, who told my baby it might suck grass when these breasts were dry with want. O mother of God, this Foulon! O heaven, our suffering! Hear me, my dead baby, and my withered father. I swear on my knees on these stones, to avenge you on Foulon. Husbands and brothers and young men, give us the blood of Foulon, give us the head of Foulon, give us the heart of Foulon, give us the body and soul of Foulon. Brand Foulon to pieces, and dig him into the ground, that grass may grow from him." With these cries, numbers of the women lashed into blind frenzy, whirled about, striking and tearing at their own friends, until they dropped into a passionate swoon, and were only saved by the men belonging to them from being trampled underfoot. Nevertheless, not a moment was lost—not a moment. This Foulon was at the Hôtel de Ville, and might be loosed. Never, if Saint-Antoine knew his own sufferings, insults and wrongs. Armed men and women flocked out of the quarter so fast, and drew even these last dregs after them with such a force of suction, that within a quarter of an hour there was not a human creature in Saint Antoine's bosom, but a few old crones, and the wailing children. No, they were all, by that time, choking the Hall of Examination, where this old man, ugly and wicked, was, and overflowing into the adjacent open space and streets. The Defarges, husband and wife, the Vengeance, and Jacques three were in the first press, and at no great distance from him in the hall. "'See, the old villain bound with ropes! That was well done to tie a bunch of grass upon his back! Ha! <laughs> that was well done! Let him eat it now!' Madame put her knife under her arm, and clapped her hands, as at a play. The people immediately behind Madame Defarge explaining the cause of her satisfaction to those behind them, and those again explaining to others, and those to others, the neighbouring streets resounded with the clapping of hands. Similarly, during two or three hours of drawl and the winnowing of many bushels of words, Madame Defarge's frequent expressions of impatience were taken up, with marvellous quickness at a distance. The more readily, because certain men, who had by some wonderful exercise of agility, climbed up the external architecture to look in from the windows, knew Madame Defarge well, and acted as a telegraph between her and the crowd outside the building. At length, the sun rose so high that it struck a kindly ray, as of hope or protection, directly down upon the old prisoner's head. The favour was too much to bear. In an instant, the barrier of dust and chaff that had stood surprisingly long went to the winds, and Saint Antoine, had got him. It was known directly to the furthest confines of the crowd. Defarge had but sprung over a railing and a table, and folded the miserable wretch in a deadly embrace. Madame Defarge had but followed and turned her hand in one of the ropes with which he was tied. The Vengeance and Jacques Three were not yet up with them, and the men at the windows had not yet swooped into the hall, like birds of prey from their high perches when the cry seemed to go up, all over the city, "'Bring him out! Bring him to the lamp!' Down and up, and head foremost on the steps of the building. Now on his knees, now on his feet, now on his back, dragged and struck at, and stifled by the bunches of grass and straw that were thrust into his face by hundreds of hands. Torn, bruised, panting, bleeding, yet always entreating and beseeching for mercy now full of vehement agony of action with a small clear space about him as the people drew one another back that they might see now a log of dead wood drawn through a forest of legs he was hauled to the nearest street corner where one of the fatal lamps swung and there madame defarge let him go as a cat might have done to a mouse and silently and composedly looked at him while they made ready and while he besought her the women passionately screeching at him all the time, and the men sternly calling out to have him killed with grass in his mouth. Once he went aloft, and the rope broke, and they caught him shrieking. Twice he went aloft, and the rope broke, and they caught him shrieking. Then the rope was merciful, and held him, and his head was soon upon a pike, with grass enough in the mouth for all Saint-Antoine to dance at the side of nor was this the end of the day's bad work, for Saint-Antoine so shouted and danced his angry blood up, that it boiled again, on hearing, when the day closed in, that the son-in-law of the despatched, another of the public's enemies and insulters, was coming into Paris under a guard five hundred strong, in cavalry alone. Saint-Antoine wrote his crimes on flaring sheets of paper, seized them, would have torn him out of the breast of an army to bear Foulon company, set his head and heart on pikes, and carried the three spoils of the day, in wolf procession, through the streets. Not before dark night did the men and women come back to the children, wailing and breadless. Then the miserable baker's shops were beset by long files of them, patiently waiting to buy bad bread, and, while they waited, with stomachs faint and empty, they beguiled the time by embracing one another on the triumphs of the day, and achieving them again in gossip. Gradually, these strings of ragged people shortened and frayed away, and then poor lights began to shine in high windows, and slender fires were made in the streets, and which neighbours cooked in common, afterwards supping at their doors. Scanty and insufficient suppers, those— and innocent of meat, as of most other sauce, to wretched bread, yet human fellowship infused some nourishment into the flinty vines and struck some sparks of cheerfulness out of them. Fathers and mothers who had had their full share in the worst of the day, played gently with their meagre children and lovers with such a world around them and before them, loved and hoped it was almost morning when Defarge's wine-shop parted with his last knot of customers and Monsieur Defarge said to Madame, his wife, in husky tones, while fastening the door, "'At last it is come, my dear!' Oh well,' returned Madame, "'almost!' Saint Antoine slept, the Defarges slept, even the Vengeance slept with her starved grocer, and the drum was at rest. The drums was the only voice in Saint Antoine that blood and hurry had not changed. The vengeance, as custodian of the drum, could have wakened him up, and had the same speech out of him as before the Bastille fell, or old Foulon was seized. Not so with the hoarse tones of the men and women, in St. Antoine's bosom. CHAPTER Twenty Three: FIRE RISES There was a change on the village where the fountain fell and where the mender of roads went forth daily to hammer out of the stones on the highway such morsels of bread as might serve for patches to hold his poor ignorant soul and his poor reduced body together the prison on the crag was not so dominant as of yore there were soldiers to guard it but not many there were officers to guard the soldiers but not one of them knew what his men would do beyond this that it would probably not be what he was ordered Far and wide lay a ruined country, yielding nothing but desolation. Every green leaf, every blade of grass and blade of grain, was as shriveled and poor as the miserable people. Everything was bowed down, dejected, oppressed, and broken—habitations, fences, domesticated animals, men, women, children, and the soil that bore them, all worn out. Monseigneur, often a most worthy individual gentleman, was a national blessing, gave a chivalrous tone to things, was a polite example of luxurious and shining life, and a great deal more to equal purpose. Nevertheless, Monseigneur as a class had, somehow or other, brought things to this. Strange that creation, designed expressly for Monseigneur, should be so soon wrung dry and squeezed out. There must be something short-sighted in the eternal arrangements, surely. Thus it was, however, and the last drop of blood having been extricated from the flints, and the last screw of the rack having been turned so often that its purchase crumbled, and it now turned and turned with nothing to bite, Monseigneur began to run away from a phenomenon so low and unaccountable. But this was not the change on the village, and on many a village like it. For scores of years gone by, Monseigneur had squeezed it and wrung it. And had seldom graced it with his presence, except for the pleasures of the chase, now found in hunting the people, now found in hunting the beasts, for whose preservation Monseigneur made edifying spaces of barbarous and barren wilderness. No, the change consisted in the appearance of strange faces of low caste, rather than in the disappearance of the high-caste, chiselled, and otherwise beautified and beautifying features, of Monseigneur. For in these times, as the mender of roads worked solitary in the dust, not often troubling himself to reflect that dust he was and to dust he must return, being for the most part too much occupied in thinking how little he had for supper, and how much more he would eat if he had it,--in these times, as he raised his eyes from his lonely labour and viewed the prospect, he would see some rough figure approaching on foot, the like of which was once a rarity in those parts, but was now a frequent presence. As it advanced, the mender of roads would discern, without surprise, that it was a shaggy-haired man, of almost barbarian aspect, tall, in wooden shoes that were clumsy even to the eyes of the mender of roads, grim, rough, steeped in the mud and dust of many highways, dank with the marshy moisture of many low grounds, sprinkled with the thorns and leaves and moss of many byways through woods. Such a man came upon him, like a ghost, at noon in the July weather, as he sat on his heap of stones under the bank, taking such shelter as he could get from a shower of hail. The man looked at him, looked at the village in the hollow, at the mill, and at the prison on the crag. When he had identified these objects, in what benighted mind he had, he said, in a dialect that was just intelligible, "'How goes it, Jacques?' Ah well, Jacques. Touch, then." They joined hands, and the man sat down on the heap of stones. "'No dinner? Nothing but supper, now,' said the Mender of Rhodes, with a hungry face. "'It is the fashion,' growled the man. "'I meet no dinner anywhere.' He took out a blackened pipe, filled it, lighted it with flint and steel, pulled at it until it was in a bright glow then suddenly held it from him, and dropped something into it from between his finger and thumb, that blazed and went out in a puff of smoke. "'Touch, then!' it was the turn of the mender of roads to say it this time, after observing these operations. They again joined hands. "'Tonight?' said the mender of roads. "'Tonight!' said the man, putting the pipe in his mouth. "'Where?' Here he and the mender of roads sat on the heap of stones looking silently at one another with the hail driving in between them like a pygmy charge of bayonets until the sky began to clear over the village show me said the traveller then moving to the brow of the hill see returned the mender of roads with extended finger you go down here and straight through the street and past the fountain To the devil with all that, interrupted the other, rolling his eye over the landscape. I go through no streets and pass no fountains. Well, about two leagues beyond the summit of that hill above the village. Good. When do you cease to work? At sunset. Will you wake me before departing? I have walked two nights without resting. Let me finish my pipe, and I shall sleep like a child. "'Will you wake me? Surely!' The wayfarer smoked his pipe out, put it in his breast, slipped off his great wooden shoes, and lay down on his back on the heap of stones. He was fast asleep directly. As the road-mender plied his dusty labour, and the hail-clouds, rolling away, revealed bright bars and streaks of sky, which were responded to by silver gleams upon the landscape, The little man, who wore a red cap now, in place of his blue one, seemed fascinated by the figure on the heap of stones. His eyes were so often turned towards it, that he used his tools mechanically, and one would have said to very poor account. The bronze face, the shaggy black hair and beard, the coarse woollen red cap, the rough, medley dress of homespun stuff and hairy skins of beasts, the powerful frame attenuated by spare living and the sullen and desperate compression of the lips in sleep, inspired the mender of roads with awe. The traveller had travelled far, and his feet were footsore, and his ankles chafed and bleeding. His great shoes, stuffed with leaves and grass, had been heavy to drag over the many long leagues, and his clothes were chafed into holes, as he himself was into sores. Stooping down beside him, the roadmender tried to get a peep at secret weapons in his breast, or where not. But in vain, for he slept with his arms crossed upon him, and sat as resolutely as his lips. Fortified towns, with their stockades, guardhouses, gates, trenches, and drawbridges, seemed to the mender of roads to be so much air as against this figure. And when he lifted his eyes from it to the horizon and looked around, He saw in his small fancy similar figures, stopped by no obstacle, tending to centres all over France. The man slept on, indifferent to showers of hail and intervals of brightness, to sunshine on his face and shadow, to the paltering lumps of dull ice on his body, and the diamonds into which the sun changed them, until the sun was low in the west and the sky was glowing. Then, the Mender of Rhodes, having got his tools together, and all things ready to go down into the village, roused him. "'Good!' said the sleeper, rising on his elbow. "'Two leagues beyond the summit of the hill—about—good!' The Mender of Rhodes went home, with the dust going on before him, according to the set of the wind, and was soon at the fountain, squeezing himself in among the lean kine brought there to drink and appearing even to whisper to them in his whispering to all the village. When the village had taken its poor supper, it did not creep to bed, as it usually did, but came out of doors again, and remained there. A curious contagion of whispering was upon it, and also, when it gathered together at the fountain in the dark, another curious contagion of looking expectantly at the sky in one direction only. Monsieur Gabel, chief functionary of the place, became uneasy, went out on his housetop alone, and looked in that direction too, glanced down from behind his chimneys at the darkening faces by the fountain below, and sent word to the sacristan, who kept the keys of the church, that there might be need to ring the tocsin by and by. The night deepened, the trees environing the old chateau, keeping its solitary state apart, moved in a rising wind, as though they threatened the pile of building massive and dark in the gloom. Up the two terrace-flights of steps, the rain ran wildly, and beat at the great door like a swift messenger rousing those within. Uneasy rushes of wind went through the hall, among the old spears and knives, and passed lamenting up the stairs, and shook the curtains of the bed where the last Marquis had slept. East, west, north and south through the woods, four heavy-treading unkept figures crushed the high grass and cracked the branches, striding on cautiously to come together in the courtyard. Four lights broke out there, and moved away in different directions, and all was black again. But not for long. Presently, the chateau began to make itself strangely visible by some light of its own, as though it were growing luminous. Then, a flickering streak played behind the architecture of the front, picking out transparent places, and showing where balustrades, arches, and windows were. Then it soared higher, and grew broader and brighter. Soon, from a score of the great windows, flames burst forth, and the stone faces, awakened, stared out of fire. A faint murmur arose about the house from the few people who were left there and there was the saddling of a horse and riding away. There was spurring and splashing through the darkness, and bridle was drawn in the space by the village fountain, and the horse, in a foam, stood at M. Gabel's door. Help, Gabel! Help! Everyone! The tocsin rang impatiently, but other help, if that were any, there was none. The mender of roads, and two hundred and fifty particular friends, stood with folded arms at the fountain, looking at the pillar of fire in the sky. "'It must be forty feet high,' said they, grimly, and never moved. The rider from the chateau and the horse in a foam, clattered away through the village, and galloped up the stony steep, to the prison on the crag. At the gate, a group of officers was looking at the fire, removed from them a group of soldiers. "'Help, gentlemen! Officers! The chateau is on fire. Valuable objects may be saved from the flames by timely aid. Help! Help!" The officers looked towards the soldiers, who looked at the fire, gave no orders, and answered, with shrugs and biting of lips, "'It must burn!' As the rider rattled down the hill again and through the streets, the village was illuminating. The mender of roads, and the two hundred and fifty particular friends, inspired as one man and woman by the idea of lighting up, had darted into their houses, and were putting candles in every dull little pane of glass. The general scarcity of everything occasioned candles to be borrowed in a rather peremptory manner of M. Gabel, and in a moment of reluctance and hesitation on that functionary's part, the mender of roads, once so submissive to authority, had remarked that carriages were good to make bonfires with, and that post-horses would roast the chateau was left to itself to flame and burn in the roaring and raging of the conflagration. A red-hot wind driving straight from the infernal regions seemed to be blowing the edifice away with the rising and the falling of the blaze. The stone faces showed as if they were in torment when the great masses of stone and timber fell. The face with the two dints in the nose became obscured. Anon struggled out of the smoke again as if it were the face of the cruel marquis, burning at the stake and contending with the fire. The chateau burned. The nearest trees, laid hold of by the fire, scorched and shrivelled. Trees at a distance, fired by the four fierce figures, begirt the blazing edifice with a new forest of smoke. Molten lead and iron boiled in the marble basin of the fountain. The water ran dry. The extinguisher tops of the towers vanished like ice before the heat, and trickled down into the four rugged walls of flame. Great rents and splits branched out in the solid walls like crystallization. Stupefied birds wheeled about and dropped into the furnace. Four fierce figures trudged away, east, west, north, and south, along the night-enshrouded roads, guided by the beacon they had lighted, towards their next destination the illuminated village had seized hold of the tocsin, and abolishing the lawful ringer, rang for joy. Not only that, but the village, light-headed, with famine, and fire, and bell-ringing, and bethinking itself that M. Gabel had to do with the collection of rent and taxes, though it was but a small instalment of taxes, and no rent at all, that Gabel had got in those latter days, became impatient for an interview with him, and surrounding his house, summoned him to come forth for personal conference. Whereupon, Monsieur Gabel did heavily bar his door, and retired to hold council with himself. The result of that conference was, that Gabel again withdrew himself to his house top behind his stack of chimneys. This time resolved, if his door were broken in—he was a small southern man of retaliative temperament—to pitch himself head-foremost over the prospect, and crush a man or two below. Probably, Monsieur Gabel passed a long night up there, with the distant chateau for fire and candle, and the beating at his door, combined with the joy-ringing for music, not to mention his having an ill-omened lamp slung across the road before his posting-house gate, which the village showed a lively inclination to displace in his favour. A trying suspense to be passing a whole summer night on the brink of the black ocean, ready to take that plunge into it upon which M. Gabelle had resolved. But the friendly dawn appearing at last, and the rush-candles of the village guttering out, the people happily dispersed, and M. Gabelle came down, bringing his life with him for that while. Within a hundred miles, and in the light of other fires, there were other functionaries less fortunate, that night and other nights. Whom the rising sun found hanging across once peaceful streets where they had been born and bred. Also, there were other villagers and townspeople less fortunate than the mender of roads and his fellows, upon whom the functionaries and soldiery turned their success, and whom they strung up in their turn. But the fierce figures were steadily wending east, west, north, and south, be that as it would, and whosoever hung, fire burned the altitude of the gallows that would turn to water and quench it, no functionary, by any stretch of mathematics, was able to calculate successfully. CHAPTER Twenty Four: DRAWN TO THE Lodestone ROCK In such risings of fire and risings of sea, the firm earth shaken by the rushes of an angry ocean, which had now no ebb, but was always on the flow, higher and higher, to the terror and wonder of the beholders on the shore, three years of tempest were consumed. Three more birthdays of little Lucy had been woven by the golden thread into the peaceful tissue of the life of her home. Many a night and many a day had its inmates listened to the echoes in the corner, with hearts that failed them when they heard the thronging feet for the footsteps had become to their minds as the footsteps of a people, tumultuous under a red flag and with their country declared in danger, changed into wild beasts by terrible enchantment long persisted in. Monseigneur, as a class, had dissociated himself from the phenomenon of his not being appreciated, of his being so little wanted in France, as to incur considerable danger of receiving his dismissal from it and this life together, like the fabled rustic who raised the devil with infinite pains, and was so terrified at the sight of him, that he could ask the enemy no question, but immediately fled. So, monseigneur, after boldly reading the Lord's Prayer backwards for a great number of years, and performing many other potent spells for compelling the evil one, no sooner beheld him in his terrors, than he took to his noble heels. The shining bull's-eye of the court was gone or it would have been the mark for a hurricane of national bullets. It had never been a good eye to see with, had long had the moat in it of Lucifer's pride, Sardanapalus's luxury, and a moe's blindness, but it had dropped out, and was gone. The court, from that exclusive inner circle, to its outermost rotten ring of intrigue, corruption, and dissimulation, was all gone together. Royalty was gone, had been besieged in its palace, and suspended, when the last tidings came over, the August of the year one thousand seven hundred and ninety two was come, and monseigneur was by this time scattered far and wide. As was natural, the headquarters and great gathering place of monseigneur in London was Telson's Bank. Spirits were supposed to haunt the places where their bodies most resorted, and monseigneur, without a guinea, haunted the spot where his guineas used to be. Moreover, it was the spot to which such French intelligence, as was most to be relied upon, came quickest. Again, Tellson's was a munificent house, and extended great liberality to old customers who had fallen from their high estate. Again, those nobles who had seen the coming storm in time, and anticipating plunder or confiscation, had made provident remittances to Tellson's, were always to be heard of there by their needy brethren. To which it must be added that every newcomer from France reported himself and his tidings at Telson's almost as a matter of course. For such variety of reasons, Telson's was at that time, as to the French intelligence, a kind of high exchange, and this was so well known to the public, and the inquiries made there were in consequence so numerous, that Telson's sometimes wrote the latest news out in a line or so and posted it in the bank windows, for all who ran through Temple Bar to read. On a steamy, misty afternoon, Mr. Lorry sat at his desk, and Charles Darnay stood leaning on it, talking with him in a low voice. The penitential den, once set apart for interviews with the house, was now the news exchange, and was filled to overflowing. It was within half an hour or so of the time of closing. "'Although you are the youngest man that ever lived,' said Charles Darnay, rather hesitating, "'I must still suggest to you, I understand, that I am too old,' said Mr. Lorry. "'Unsettled weather, a long journey, uncertain means of travelling, a disorganised country, a city that may not even be safe for you.' "'My dear Charles,' said Mr. Lorry, with cheerful confidence, you touch some of the reasons for my going, not for my staying away. It is safe enough for me. Nobody will care to interfere with an old fellow of hard-upon-fourscore, when there are so many people there much better worth interfering with. As to its being a disorganized city, if it were not a disorganized city, there would be no occasion to send somebody from our house here to our house there who knows the city and the business of old, and is in Telson's confidence. As to the uncertain travelling, the long journey, and the winter weather, if I were not prepared to submit myself to a few inconveniences for the sake of Telson's, after all these years, who ought to be?" "'I wish I were going myself,' said Charles Darnay, somewhat restlessly, and like one thinking aloud. Indeed. "'You are a pretty fellow to object and advise,' exclaimed Mr. Lorry. "'You wish you were going yourself? And you a Frenchman born? You are a wise counsellor, "'My dear Mr. Lorry, it is because I am a Frenchman born, that the thought, which I do not mean to utter here, however, has passed through my mind often. One cannot help thinking, having had some sympathy for the miserable people, and having abandoned something to them—he spoke here, in his formal, thoughtful manner—that one might be listened to, and might have the power to persuade to some restraint. Only last night, after you had left us, when I was talking to Lucy— When you were talking to Lucy, Mr. Lorry repeated, yes, I wonder you are not ashamed to mention the name of Lucy, wishing you were going to France at this time of day. However, I am not going, said Charles Darnay, with a smile. It is more to the purpose that you say you are. And I am, in plain reality. The truth is, my dear Charles—Mr. Lorry glanced at the distant house, and lowered his voice—you can have no conception of the difficulty with which our business is transacted, and of the peril in which our books and papers over yonder are involved. The Lord above knows what the compromising consequences would be to numbers of people, if some of our documents were seized or destroyed, and they might be at any time, you know, for who can say that Paris is not set afire to-day, or sacked to-morrow? Now, a judicious selection from these with the least possible delay, and the burying of them, or otherwise getting them out of harm's way, is within the power. Without loss of precise time, of scarcely any one but myself, if any one. And shall I hang back, when Tellson knows this and says this, Telson's, whose bread I have eaten these sixty years, because I am a little stiff about the joints? Why, I am a boy, sir, to half a dozen old codgers here. How I admire the gallantry of your youthful spirit, Mr. Lorry. "'Nonsense, sir! And, my dear Charles,' said Mr. Lorry, glancing at the house again, "'you are to remember, that getting things out of Paris at this present time, no matter what things, is next to an impossibility. Papers and precious matters were this very day brought to us here—' "'I speak in strict confidence. It is not business-like to whisper it, even to you.' by the strangest bearers you can imagine. Every one of them had his head hanging on by a single hair as he passed the barriers. At another time, our parcels would come and go as easily as in business like old England. But now, everything is stopped. And do you really go to-night? I really go to-night, for the case has become too pressing to admit of delay. And do you take no one with you? All sorts of people have been proposed to me, but I will have nothing to say to any of them. I intend to take Jerry. Jerry has been my bodyguard on Sunday nights for a long time past, and I am used to him. Nobody will suspect Jerry of being anything but an English bulldog, or of having any design in his head but to fly at anybody who touches his master. I must say again that I heartily admire your gallantry and youthfulness. I must say again nonsense—nonsense. When I have executed this little commission, I shall, perhaps, accept Telson's proposal to retire and live at my ease. Time enough, then, to think about growing old." This dialogue had taken place at Mr. Lorry's usual desk, with Monseigneur swarming within a yard or two of it boastful of what he would do to avenge himself on the rascal people before long. It was too much the way of Monseigneur, under his reverses as a refugee, and it was much too much the way of native British orthodoxy, to talk of this terrible revolution as if it were the only harvest ever known under the skies that had not been sown, as if nothing had ever been done, or omitted to be done, that had led to it as if observers of the wretched millions in France, and of the misused and perverted resources that should have made them prosperous, had not seen it inevitably coming, years before, and had not in plain words recorded what they saw. Such vapouring, combined with the extravagant plots of Monseigneur for the restoration of a state of things that had utterly exhausted itself, and worn out heaven and earth as well as itself, was hard to be endured without some remonstrance by any sane man who knew the truth. And it was such vapouring all about his ears, like a troublesome confusion of blood in his own head, added to a latent uneasiness in his mind, which had already made Charles Darnay restless, and which still kept him so. Among the talkers was Striver of the King's Bench Bar, far on his way to state promotion, and therefore loud on the theme broaching to Monseigneur his devices for blowing the people up, and exterminating them from the face of the earth, and doing without them, and for accomplishing many similar objects akin in their nature to the abolition of eagles, by sprinkling salt on the tails of the race. Him Darnay heard with a particular feeling of objection, and Darnay stood divided between going away, that he might hear no more, and remaining to interpose his word, when the thing that was to be went on to shape itself out. The house approached Mr. Lorry, and laying a soiled and unopened letter before him, asked if he had yet discovered any traces of the person to whom it was addressed. The house laid the letter down so close to Darnay that he saw the direction, the more quickly, because it was his own right name. The address, turned into English, ran very pressing, to Monsieur, heretofore the Marquis saint Evremonde, of France, confided to the cares of Messrs Telson and Company, bankers, London, England. On the marriage morning, Dr Manette had made it his one urgent and express request to Charles Darnay, that the secret of this name should be, unless he, the doctor, dissolved the obligation, kept inviolate between them. Nobody else knew it to be his name. His own wife had no suspicion of the fact. Mr. Lorry could have none. "'No,' said Mr. Lorry, in reply to the house, "'I have referred it, I think, to everybody now here, and no one can tell me where this gentleman is to be found.' The hands of the clock verging upon the hour of closing the bank, there was a general set of the current of talkers past Mr. Lorry's desk. He held the letter out inquiringly. And Monseigneur looked at it in the person of this plotting and indignant refugee, and Monseigneur looked at it in the person of that plotting and indignant refugee, and this, that, and the other, all had something disparaging to say, in French or in English, concerning the Marquis who was not to be found. Nephew, I believe, but in any case, degenerate successor of the punished Marquis who was murdered, said one. Happy to say I never knew him a craven who abandoned his post," said another. This monseigneur had been got out of Paris, legs uppermost and half-suffocated, in a load of hay, some years ago. "'Infected with the new doctrines,' said a third, eyeing the direction through his glass in passing. Sent himself in opposition to the last Marquis, abandoned the estates when he inherited them, and left them to the ruffian herd. They will recompense him now, I hope, as he deserves." "'He?' cried the blatant Stryver. "'Did he, though? Is that the sort of fellow? Let us look at his infamous name, Damn the Fellow." Darnay, unable to restrain himself any longer, touched Mr. Striver on the shoulder, and said, "'I know the fellow.' "'Do you? By Jupiter,' said Striver. "'I am sorry for it.' "'Why?' Why, Mr. Darnay? Do you hear what he did? Don't ask why, in these times." But I do ask why. Then I tell you again, Mr. Darnay. I am sorry for it. I am sorry to hear you putting any such extraordinary questions. Here is a fellow who, infected by the most pestilent and blasphemous code of devilry that ever was known, Abandon his property to the vilest scum of the earth that ever did murder by wholesale, and you ask me why I am sorry that a man who instructs youth knows him well, but I'll answer you. I am sorry because I believe there is contamination in such a scoundrel. That's why, mindful of the secrets, darnay with great difficulty checked himself and said, "You may not understand the gentleman." "'I understand how to put you in a corner, Mr. Darnay,' said Bully Stryver, "'and I'll do it. If this fellow is a gentleman, I don't understand him. You may tell him so, with my compliments. You may also tell him, from me, that after abandoning his worldly goods and position to this butcherly mob, I wonder he is not at the head of them. But no, gentlemen said Stryver, looking all around, and snapping his fingers, I know something of human nature, and I tell you, that you'll never find a fellow like this fellow, trusting himself to the mercies of such precious protégés. No, gentlemen, he'll always show em a clean pair of heels very early in the scuffle, and sneak away." With those words, and a final snap of his fingers, Mr. Striver shouldered himself into Fleet Street, amidst the general approbation of his hearers. Mr. Lorry and Charles Darnay were left alone at the desk, in the general departure from the bank. "'Will you take charge of the letter?' said Mr. Lorry. "'You know where to deliver it?' "'I do.' "'Will you undertake to explain that we suppose it to have been addressed here, on the chance of our knowing where to forward it, and that it has been here some time?' "'I will do so.' Do you start for Paris from here? From here, at eight. I will come back to see you off." Very ill at ease with himself, and with Striver and most other men, Darnay made the best of his way into the quiet of the Temple, opened the letter, and read it. These were its contents. Prison of the Abbaye, Paris. June 21, 1792. Monsieur heretofore the Marquis. After having been in danger of my life at the hands of the village, I have been seized with great violence and indignity, and brought a long journey on foot to Paris. On the road, I have suffered a great deal. Nor is that all. My house has been destroyed, razed to the ground. The crime for which I am imprisoned, monsieur, heretofore the marquis, and for which I shall be summoned before the tribunal, and shall lose my life, without your so generous help, is, they tell me, treason against the majesty of the people, in that I have acted against them for an emigrant. It is in vain I represent that I have acted for them, and not against, according to your commands. It is in vain I represent that, before the sequestration of emigrant property, I had remitted the imposts they had ceased to pay, that I had collected no rent that I had had recourse to no process. The only response is, that I have acted for an emigrant. And where is that emigrant?" "'Ah! most gracious monsieur, heretofore the Marquis! Where is that emigrant?' "'I cry in my sleep, where is he? I demand of heaven, will he not come to deliver me?' "'No answer.' "'Ah! monsieur, heretofore the Marquis! I send my desolate cry across the sea, hoping it may perhaps reach your ears through the great bank of Tilson, known at Paris. For the love of heaven, of justice, of generosity, of the honour of your noble name, I supplicate you, monsieur heretofore the Marquis, to succour and release me. My fault is that I have been true to you. oh monsieur heretofore the Marquis, i pray you be you true to me from this prison here of horror whence i every hour tend nearer and nearer to destruction i send you monsieur heretofore the marquis the assurance of my dolorous and unhappy service you're afflicted gabelle the latent uneasiness in darnay's mind was roused to vigorous life by this letter The peril of an old servant and a good one, whose only crime was fidelity to himself and his family, stared him so reproachfully in the face, that, as he walked to and fro in the temple considering what to do, he almost hid his face from the passers-by. He knew very well, that in his horror of the deed which had culminated the bad deeds and the bad reputation of the old family house, in his resentful suspicions of his uncle, and in the aversion with which his conscience regarded the crumbling fabric that he was supposed to uphold, he had acted imperfectly. He knew very well that in his love for Lucy, his renunciation of his social place, though by no means new to his own mind, had been hurried and incomplete. He knew that he ought to have systematically worked it out and supervised it, and that he had meant to do it, and that it had never been done. The happiness of his own chosen English home, the necessity of being always actively employed, the swift changes and troubles of the time which had followed on one another so fast, that the events of this week annihilated the immature plans of last week, and the events of the week following made all new again, he knew very well that to the force of these circumstances he had yielded—not without disquiet, but still without continuous and accumulating resistance that he had watched the times for a time of action, and that they had shifted and struggled until the time had gone by, and the nobility were trooping from France by every highway and byway, and their property was in course of confiscation and destruction, and their very names were blotting out, was as well known to himself as it could be to any new authority in France that might impeach him for it. But he had oppressed no man, he had imprisoned no man he was so far from having harshly exacted payment of his dues that he had relinquished them of his own will thrown himself on a world with no favour in it won his own private place there and earned his own bread monsieur gabelle had held the impoverished and involved estate on written instructions to spare the people to give them what little there was to give such fuel as the heavy creditors would let them have in the winter and such produce as could be saved from the same grip in the summer and no doubt he had put the fact in plea and proof, for his own safety, so that it could not but appear now. This favoured the desperate resolution Charles Darnay had begun to make, that he would go to Paris. Yes, like the mariner in the old story, the winds and streams had driven him within the influence of the lodestone rock, and it was drawing him to itself, and he must go everything that arose before his mind drifted him on, faster and faster, more and more steadily, to the terrible attraction. His latent uneasiness had been, that bad aims were being worked out in his own unhappy land by bad instruments, and that he, who could not fail to know that he was better than they, was not there, trying to do something to stay bloodshed and assert the claims of mercy and humanity. With this uneasiness half stifled and half reproaching him, he had been brought to the pointed comparison of himself with the brave old gentleman in whom duty was so strong. Upon that comparison, injurious to himself, had instantly followed the sneers of Monseigneur, which had stung him bitterly, and those of Striver, which above all were coarse and galling for old reasons. Upon those had followed Gabelle's letter, the appeal of an innocent prisoner in danger of death, to his justice, honour, and good name. His resolution was made. He must go to Paris. Yes, the lodestone rock was drawing him, and he must sail on until he struck. He knew of no rock. He saw hardly any danger. The intention with which he had done what he had done, even, although he had left it incomplete, presented it before him in an aspect that would be gratefully acknowledged in France on his presenting himself to assert it. Then, that glorious vision of doing good, which is so often the sanguine mirage of so many good minds, arose before him, and he even saw himself, in the illusion, with some influence to guide this raging revolution that was running so fearfully wild. As he walked to and fro with his resolution made, he considered that neither lucy nor her father must know of it until he was gone lucy should be spared the pain of separation and her father always reluctant to turn his thoughts towards the dangerous ground of old should come to the knowledge of the step as a step taken and not in the balance of suspense and doubt how much of the incompleteness of his situation was referable to her father through the painful anxiety to avoid reviving old associations of france in his mind he did not discuss with himself. But that circumstance, too, had had its influence in his course. He walked to and fro, with thoughts very busy, until it was time to return to Telson's and take leave of Mr. Lorry. As soon as he arrived in Paris, he would present himself to this old friend, but he must say nothing of his intention now. A carriage with post-horses was ready at the bank door, and Jerry was booted and equipped i have delivered that letter said charles darnay to mr lorry i would not consent to your being charged with any written answer but perhaps you will take a verbal one that i will and readily said mr lorry if it is not dangerous not at all though it is to a prisoner in the abaye what is his name said mr lorry with his open pocket-book in his hand gabelle gabelle And what is the message to the unfortunate Gabelle in prison? Simply, that he has received the letter, and will come. Any time mentioned? He will start upon his journey to-morrow night. Any person mentioned? No. He helped Mr. Lorry to wrap himself in a number of coats and cloaks, and went out with him, from the warm atmosphere of the old bank, into the misty air of Fleet Street. My love to Lucy and to little Lucy said, Mr. Lorry at parting, and take precious care of them till I come back, Charles Darnay shook his head and doubtfully smiled as the carriage rolled away that night. It was the fourteenth of August. He sat up late and wrote two fervent letters, one was to Lucy, explaining the strong obligation he was under to go to Paris and showing her, at length, the reasons that he had for feeling confident that he could become involved in no personal danger there. The other was to the doctor, confiding Lucy and their dear child to his care, and dwelling on the same topics with the strongest assurances. To both, he wrote that he would dispatch letters in proof of his safety, immediately after his arrival. It was a hard day, that day, of being among them, with the first reservation of their joint lives on his mind. It was a hard matter to preserve the innocent deceit, of which they were profoundly unsuspicious. But an affectionate glance at his wife, so happy and busy, made him resolute not to tell her what impended. He had been half moved to do it, so strange it was to him to act in anything without her quiet aid. And the day passed quickly. Early in the evening he embraced her, and her scarcely less dear namesake, pretending that he would return by and by. An imaginary engagement took him out, and he had secreted a valise of clothes ready. And so he emerged into the heavy mist of the heavy streets, with a heavier heart. The unseen force was drawing him fast to itself now, and all the tides and winds were setting straight and strong towards it. He left his two letters with a trusty porter, to be delivered half an hour before midnight, and no sooner, took horse for Dover, and began his journey. For the love of heaven, of justice, of generosity, of the honour of your noble name, was the poor prisoner's cry with which he strengthened his sinking heart, as he left all that was dear on earth behind him, and floated away for the lodestone rock. End of Book the Second